Father God, we thank you that you have inspired a spirit of generosity amongst your people. Would you, would you please continue to grow us in this era that we would excel in the grace of giving. Help us to steward what you have entrusted to us well, that we would invest in the kingdom. And Father, we pray now as we come to your word, please humble us. Help us to see the areas in our life that we are hanging too much security, purpose, significance and value in things that just will not last. Help us to see the contradictions in our life that we believe. And lead us this morning to the foot of the cross that we would worship Jesus and live life in a radical new freedom that the gospel brings. We pray this in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. And those who agreed said, Amen. Amen. All right, let's go. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. I'm not going to, we're not, we're, we're going to do all of 5 and 6 today. I'm not going to read it all. So we're just going to read some of chapter 5. We're going to start at verse 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet higher ones over him. But this is gained for land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase those who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of the laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is a father of a son, but has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, so he shall go again, naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all the days he eats in darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good And fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the few days of this life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them, to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy in his heart. You know, in 2013, McCrindle Research, Mark McCrindle was here a couple of weeks ago, they uh, produced a study called the National Happiness Barometer. It was a, a study that they did asking a bunch of Australians how happy they were and how happy we were in comparison to five years ago. So they asked a question of how happy do you think we ought to feel as a nation? How happy do you feel personally as a person? And they found a number of things. When they gauged a person's sense of happiness in in comparison to their financial standing and that of others, they found this result. That those who earn significantly more than the average wage in Australia felt that as a nation we were more happy than average. And those who earn significantly less than the average wage felt that as a nation we were less happy than average. What they found was that when you ask a question of happiness in comparison 
to other people and what you have, that people generally said that the more money you have, the happier you ought to feel. But when they asked the question of intrinsic happiness, of happiness not in comparison to others or not in comparison to average earnings and where you stand, when they asked the question of your own personal sense of satisfaction and happiness and purpose, they found very different results. In fact, the group that said they felt the most happy were those who earned significantly less than the average. The second group was those who earned significantly more than the average, and then the other two guys either side of the extreme were not as happy as them. What this research has shown us is that real happiness is not necessarily tied to how much you earn and how you compare in the, in the pecking order of society. In fact, real genuine happiness is gauged on far more subjective and internal measures than that. And to be fair, that's a message the Bible has been preaching for millennia before research ever figured that out. And my guess it's a message that deep down we all really know to be true. But our problem is that we think that wealth will bring happiness and comfort and security and solve all of our problems. I mean, who didn't walk past the newsagents this week and see the little sign out the front and the little cage that says Powerball, $50 million, and think, that'd be good. 50, what could I do with $50 million? I'd be happy and solve all my problems. I'd have a nicer car than what I've got right now. $50 million. Like, is it just me? Was I the only person to walk past the newsagent this week and thought... We could buy a church building, we, right? We all think that if we just had a little bit more, we'd be happier. Why is it that we attach so much of our sense of significance and purpose and meaning in life to something like wealth and possessions? A professor by the name of Barry Schwartz, he's a professor of social theory at Swarthmore College in Philadelphia, he says that the reason that we do this, the reason that we live in a way that's so contrary to our deepest held beliefs is because of a phenomenon called the focalism illusion. And that is that we just have a view that is way too narrow. We live this way because we actually lack a viable alternative way to live. He says, and I quote, Wherever we turn, the lesson we are taught is that what we do and should care about is ourselves, and more specifically, about our material selves. In the series that we've been walking through in Ecclesiastes, the series called Vanitas, this preacher, who we believe is King Solomon, calls into question the contradictions that we live with every day. He's called into question the vanity of all of life as it just goes round and round and round in circles. He's called into question the vanity of pursuing toil and pleasure, the vanity of loneliness, the vanity of time. And today, he's going to call into question the vanity of wealth. He's going to give us six reasons why the pursuit of wealth is vanity. Now, we've got to remember that when he uses that word vanity, he's not saying that all wealth is completely and utterly devoid of any meaning at all. He's not saying that. That may be his logical conclusion when he gets to the end of his argument. But when he says that wealth is vanity, what he means is that it's a mist. It's fleeting. It's temporal. It just 
doesn't last. And because it doesn't last, it in the end cannot provide the real deep satisfaction that we long for. And so he's going to give us six reasons why the pursuit of wealth is vanity. And reason number one is this. Greed is destructive. Have a look at verse 8 again. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher, and there is yet higher ones over them. Often the attempt at gain, at earning, at wealth, comes at the expense of the poor. The system is often corrupt. You go to an official and you plead your case and there's corruption that exists and you go to the higher official above him and the officials are all kind of looking out for their buddies above and below them and it's the poor that end up being oppressed by this. Now when he says there, don't be surprised at the matter. He's not condoning the injustice. He's simply saying, as he looks out across the world, as he surveys life under the sun, he sees this is something that happens because of sinful people's hearts, because of the greed that people have, because power corrupts, the poor are oppressed. And you know, often we can be so much a part of that problem. I don't know if you've come across the um, report that Baptist World Aid have released. It's a report card for clothing lines that um, gauges their, um, their ethical production of their clothing, how, uh, how much they pay their workers, the working conditions of factory workers, whether their cotton is ethically sourced. And then they give all of these brands a score and a ranking on a report card. So often, we just want to save a couple of dollars on a cotton t-shirt, but that choice means that we've caused someone else to be oppressed and trapped in poverty. You know, as I read through this report, in fact, there were a few brands in there that I thought, oh, gee, I've, I've purchased that one before. You know, as Christians, we ought to be leaders in the way that we ethically consume the things in our life, thoughtfully making those decisions and processes. The writer there Wishes, if only we lived in a land with a king that was committed to cultivated fields. If only there were rulers and leaders that didn't care so much about their own prosperity, but the prosperity of the people, particularly those of the poor. So the first reason that he says the pursuit of wealth is vanity is because so often greed leads to the oppression of those who are in most need. It is destructive. Second reason, number two, that pursuit of wealth is vanity is that it just doesn't satisfy. Have a look at verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. Now he's not saying again that all money is devoid of any meaning. He's not saying that. Of course that is not true. If there is a person who is trapped in poverty, if they get a job, if they come into money, of course that brings a sense of joy and satisfaction and purpose that they have access now to health care and education that they didn't have before it lifts them out of their circumstance of course money can bring that sense of satisfaction and joy but what he's saying there is when we when we love money when we love wealth with an affection for it that's the word he uses you'll never have enough you remember here, Solomon is not speaking from a position of ignorance. Like, this is not the musings of a poor guy who's just pretending what it's like to be rich. 
Solomon was the richest man in the whole of the ancient Near East. There is no one richer than Solomon. In fact, 1 Kings 10 tells us that in one year alone, he amassed $113 million worth of gold in one year. And that was just gold, not all of his other business ventures, not all of the other commodities, not all of the taxes that he collected. In one year, $113 million worth of gold. He's filthy rich. And so he speaks with authority on this issue. And he says, you know what? I've walked down that road and it is a cul-de-sac on the journey of meaning and purpose and significance. I can remember the very first time that I felt that deep sense of dissatisfaction at material possession and wealth. The first car I ever bought was a 1979 Toyota Corolla. It was awesome. One litre, half a million kilometres on it, just kept going. Just topped it up with oil every week, same as petrol, and it just kept running. But for my 21st birthday, my parents gave me a bit of money and I decided I would upgrade. And my brother and I used to look through the trading post, as you did before the days of eBay, and I spotted 1989 Ford Falcon XF, 265s on the rear, lowered twin sports exhaust, half roll cage tacos on the front, manual sports steering wheel. It was amazing. My brother and I went to look at it, and when the owner of the car turned the key and I heard the tone of the engine, I was in love. I was in love with this car, and I went home and I dreamt about it and I coveted it, and I wanted it. I didn't have the money to buy it just yet, and so I was saving and desperately hoping that no one else went along and bought it. And I remember the day we went, I bought the car, I signed the paperwork, and I got in the car, and honestly, literally, on the way home, I was overwhelmed with a sense of dissatisfaction. I felt empty. This thing that I'd been dreaming about for months didn't satisfy the longing that my soul really wanted. It just doesn't satisfy. You know, we don't usually attach religious terminology to money, but so often we treat it like it's a God. We look to money for for security, for status, and for solutions to our problem. And when we've got money in the bank, we feel secure when there's margin there. When we've got money to be able to afford the things that make us look good in the eyes of others, we feel good. When our money provides solutions to the problems we have, we feel great. But when it doesn't, we feel trapped. So often, we look to wealth, possessions, and finances for things that, in the end, spiritual and religious terminology applies. I bet there's not a single person in this room who would say, I could do with just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And then then I'll be sweet. Just a little bit more. My question is, is that a lack of satisfaction in us? Well, the preacher here tells a parable of a man who lacks satisfaction. In chapter 6, verse 1, he tells this story. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. 
If a man fathers a hundred children, lives many years so that his days, so the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and also he has no burial. I don't know what that means. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. Whoa, that's dark. Here is a man who has it all. Fame, fortune, all of the marks of a life that is blessed and abundant. He's got hundreds of kids. He's got a long life. Like in his culture, he is killing it. You've got a big family and you live for a long time, you're on a winner. This guy has it all and yet he's got none of the satisfaction that comes, that should come with those things. He lacks the ability to enjoy it. He cannot be satisfied with these things for whatever reason that is. Maybe he's just too busy with work that he doesn't have time to enjoy that. Maybe someone steals it. Maybe he's sick. Maybe he dies. Whatever it is, he cannot enjoy these gifts that God has given him. The preacher is asking the question here, what if I had everything? What if I had it all? Would that bring the satisfaction that I'm desperately seeking for? And his answer is, well, not necessarily. You may never get to enjoy any of it. This is vanity, he says, because it just does not satisfy. That's the second reason. The third reason is that it increases the circle of dependence. Verse 11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? The more you have, the more you spend. The more you earn, the more people want you to spend what you earn on them. The more you earn, the higher tax bracket you're in, the more tax you have to pay, the more you earn, the more you have to pay people to manage your finances for you. And he casts the question, what is the gain in all of this? He's got a closet and a shed and a garage full of toys and all he does is look at them because he cannot enjoy these things. There was an interview uh, with a man by the name of Jack Ma. He is the richest man in China, which is saying something because China's wealth is exploding right now. He is the owner of the Chinese version of eBay. It's called Alibaba. And he's the richest man in China. In an interview last year with the TV channel CNBC, he was asked about being the richest man in China. And this is what he said. It's a great pain. It's a great pain. You would have thought... Oh, it's awesome. I've got heaps of cars. No, no. It's a great pain being the richest man in China. When asked why, he said this. He said, when you're the richest man, everyone is surrounding you for money. All of that money, and then what does it bring? Just a greater circle of dependence or leeches, if you like. It's vanity, he says, because the more you have, the more people want what you've got. That's reason number three. The fourth reason is that you lose sleep over it. Verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. You see, the laborer sleeps easy at night. He's worked hard, and whether or not he has a good meal or not, it doesn't really matter. He sleeps well. He's worked hard with his hands. He wakes up. He knows what's happening tomorrow. He doesn't fret about his finances. And yet the rich, on the other hand... They go to bed uncomfortable with a stomach full of food because they've overindulged in all of, the, all of the food that was laid out for them. And then they go to bed and they toss and turn and they lie awake worrying about all of their money. What an irony, he says. You worry about trying to earn it and then you worry about losing it. 
In fact, in that interview with Jack Ma, he said, I'm not happy. This month, I'm not happy. And he said to him, why are you not happy, the interviewer? And he said this, and I quote, I'm not happy because maybe the stock goes up. Maybe people have high expectations on you. Maybe I think too much about the future and have too many things to worry about. A man who is worth $364 billion and he's not happy. Why? He's stressed out. He's got too much to worry about. This is vanity, says the preacher. Reason number five, that the pursuit of wealth is vanity, is because you can lose it very quickly. Have a look at verse 13. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. Preacher tells this parable of a man who's stashed away his wealth, hoarded it. This isn't saving. This is fear-based stockpiling. He's kind of stashed it away. And then all of a sudden, he splurges on a risky venture and he loses it all. Uh, Whatever that is. Stock market crashes. He invests in in a company that's not established. He's pursuing high returns and he loses it all. Wealth amassed can be lost very, very quickly. I mean, all you have to do, right, is ask all of those people who were around retirement age when the GFC hit. What happened? They're all still working because they lost so much of their fortune. All of their superannuation was decimated as the stock market crashed. Wealth can be lost so quickly. Reason number five, that the pursuit of wealth is vanity is because so often it comes as quickly as it, it goes as quickly as it comes. Now, some of you might say, well, hang on a second. I do feel satisfied with my wealth and my finances. It does. I don't feel that sense of longing and I feel great about it. But I wonder how long that feeling will last. And I wonder when you put eternity in the picture, how that changes your perspective. Because the reason number six that the preacher gives us is that you cannot take it with you. The sixth reason that the pursuit of wealth is vanity is that you cannot take it with you. Have a look at verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go, and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind. Here is a truth. You die in the same suit that you were born in. You go as you came, naked and empty-handed. Naked and empty-handed. You know the sum total of your kingdom? You know what it's worth when you die for you? Nothing. Zero. It's depressing, isn't it? But the preacher doesn't want to just let us live in ignorance. He wants us to ask the deep questions of our heart. But you know, even more depressing than that is that all of your work and all of your labor and all of your building, you then hand on to the person who will come after you. And who knows what they will do with it, right? This is what the preacher says in Ecclesiastes 2.18. He said, I hated all my toil in which I toiled under the sun seeing that I must leave it to a man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. 
Kerry Packer died in 2006 and passed on a vast majority of his wealth to his son, James Packer. James Packer became the richest man in Australia in 2006. And in the 12 months following his father's death, James Packer lost $1 billion in bad investment. $1 billion in 12 months. And in 2007, for the first time ever, a Packer wasn't the richest person in Australia. Who knows what will become of your wealth after you die. Even in 12 months, you can lose a seventh of it. You can't take it with you. You don't know what's going to happen to it. You know, the preacher is saying to you, you and Kerry Packer, you both die with the same amount of money. Nothing. So what's the point of all the pursuit and the toil and the labor to amass something that you can't even keep? And so what is the solution to a problem like this? How do we solve a problem that we deeply feel is true for us? And culturally, we feel it. You don't have to be Christian to feel this. I think culturally, we feel it. We've seen the meteoric rise of experience gifts. You know, websites like Red Balloon and Adrenaline. Because I'm sure you've all got to the point where you think, what do I get the person who's got everything? What do I buy them for Christmas? What do I get them for their birthday? Oh, no, I'll buy them an experience. You've all seen the Han Superdry ad that's floating around at the moment. Are you an experienced collector? Because life is not so much about uh, collecting things and collecting money. Life is about collecting experiences. But you know what? Ecclesiastes has a problem with that solution. The problem is the memory. Because what happens when you get old and dementia kicks in and you can't even remember the names of your grandchildren? What happens to all of those experiences that you've spent a lifetime collecting? They're a mist. They're, they're gone. And so swapping materialism for hedonism is not the solution according to the preacher. So what is the solution? What is the solution to this problem? Professor Schwartz, or whatever his name is, says that the problem in the end is capitalism. It's an evil system and we need a new system to replace it. That's his solution to the problem. It's kind of easy to blame the system, isn't it? And not look at the heart. It's very easy to do. And look, to be fair, there could be a better system. I'm no macro finance genius. There could be a better system than capitalism out there. But I know that whatever system exists, if you don't deal with the problem of the heart, those same problems of greed and oppression, and they're all going to rear their heads again. So what do we do? What is the solution to this problem of vanity we feel about the pursuit of wealth? Well, the preacher offers us a solution. In his limited view of history, he has a solution that is satisfying. Have a look at verse 18. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possession and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. See, in the end, we were never meant to find ultimate joy and satisfaction and meaning and identity 
in things, in wealth, in our money. God has always said, I want you to enjoy me by enjoying those things as a gift that I give you. You know, all of us in this room are blessed with material prosperity. Every single one of us. Even if you're on welfare, living in housing commission, you are probably still in the top 5% of the world's richest people. We are all blessed with material prosperity. But what we all really need is the double blessing of being able to enjoy that gift of material prosperity. That's what we need. And when I say enjoy it, I don't mean just selfishly spend it on yourself. More cars, greater standard of living, better food, better this, better that. Enjoying that gift might mean giving it away. Enjoying that gift may mean the joy of being a blessing to other and giving. The, doesn't Jesus say it is, ble, it is better to, it is more blessed to give than receive? Enjoying that may mean building a very successful business that provides good ethical income for people and putting food on the plates of children and families. That might be the joy of this blessing that God has given you. Enjoying this might even mean going out to a nice restaurant and going on a holiday, right? It might mean those things. But the reaction to materialism and hedonism often for the Christian is this. Or money's evil. That's what we do. We see the alternative and go, oh, money's evil. Get rid of money. All money's evil. You can't be rich and a Christian. Well, we're all a, a bit of a problem there, aren't we? We can't be rich and a Christian. We're in the top 2% of the world. What do we do with that? And so the reaction that we have to this problem is often another mistake. You'll never find a verse in the Bible that says money is evil. You just won't find it. It's not there. In fact, you'll find lots of verses that say money is a good thing, like Proverbs is full of verses that talk about the positive side of money, like Proverbs 12, 27 that says, whoever is slothful will not roast his game, but the diligent man will gain precious wealth. It's a good thing. In the end, money is not the problem. Greed is the problem. The heart is the problem. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 says, that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Greed is the root of all kinds of evil, not money itself. That's why we're warned in that passage, brothers and sisters, for those of you who worship Jesus, that there are many who have given into that desire and have wandered from the faith. That's why Jesus warns in his parable of the soils, that third soil that's planted amongst the weeds that grow up and choke the life out of it, that weeds represent the worries of this life and the pursuit of money. That's why we're warned to sit loosely with this because our hearts are so inclined to take that gift and make it an ultimate thing and worship it. You know, of all the sins that have been confessed to me, only once has anyone ever confessed the sin of greed. Once. Now, I'm not sure that's because it's a difficult thing to confess, right? People confess all sorts of sin, like people confess dark, deep sexual sin in their life. I don't think greed is necessarily hard to confess. I think the reason we don't see more frequent confession of greed is that as a culture, we're just so blinded to the reality of it in our lives. The preacher's answer to the vanity of wealth is not to hate it. It's not to demonize it, nor is it to deify it. It is to be content 
in it, to enjoy it. Whether you've got lots, whether you've got little, to enjoy what gift God has given you. But my question is, how do you do that? Because that is hard to do. How do you sit loosely with something that has such a powerful pull on our hearts? And the answer is found in the gospel. The answer is found in Jesus. So have a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse something. 8 verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. There is no one richer than the one who occupies the throne of heaven, who created everything, who owns everything. And there is no one poorer than a man stripped naked, beaten, flogged, and hung on a Roman cross. Jesus, in his poorest moment, made you rich. Not materially rich. Way, way better than materially rich. He made you spiritually rich. Jesus has made you filthy rich. This is what he's done. Jesus has made you a co-heir with him. You stand to inherit the universe because he owns it. Jesus has enriched you with forgiveness, with justifying you. He's gifted you his own personal righteousness so you can have it. He's given you every spiritual blessing in Christ. You are filthy rich spiritually if you love and worship Jesus. You know, in the end, the richest person in the world is not the one who has the most money. The richest person in the world who is the one who has had the greatest debt cancelled. And those who are in Christ have had the record of sin cancelled against them. That's what it means to be truly, truly rich. We spend all of our lives trying to amass wealth and trying to justify our own existence by the things we have and trying to satisfy that longing with retail therapy. And in the end, it leaves us empty. It leaves us longing and wanting for more. And it is only in the gospel that Jesus will fill the void that your heart feels. Only the gospel will do that. Only Jesus has the power to remove the, the, the power of the pull of the pursuit of wealth. And it's all of grace. Did you notice that there? It's all of grace. It's free. The scandal of the Christian message is that you cannot earn your way into heaven. You cannot earn it. It's a gift. It's free. It's given. It's grace. And when we get that, when we get that truth, that radically changes everything about our view of life, about wealth, about work, about pleasure, all of it. It changes everything. Because I can now enjoy the good gifts that God has given me without needing to seek purpose and significance and meaning in those things. Because I feel a deep sense of security in Christ that when I earn lots of money, I don't feel more secure because my security is in Christ and I'm allowed to be generous with that. When I lose money, I don't feel less secure because my security is in Christ. I'm not driven to despair in that because I'm secure in the gospel. Only the gospel will radically shape our view of money like that. The famous Welsh preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, has this beautiful line about wealth and possession, and he says this. I want to read it out. Talking of possessions and wealth, he says, I am not a possessor of these things. I merely have them on lease. 
and they do not really belong to me. I do not cling to these things. They do not become the center of my life and existence. I do not live for them or dwell upon them constantly in my mind. They do not absorb my life. On the contrary, I hold them loosely. And I am in a state of blessed detachment. I love that. I'm in a state of blessed detachment. Friends, only the gospel will do that. Only Jesus filling that void will allow that sense of blessed detachment to be in your life. And so let me ask you this question. Are you enjoying life? Are you enjoying the gifts that God has given you? If you're not, maybe the reality is that you're pursuing too much significance, purpose, meaning, and identity in those things rather than enjoying them as gifts that God has given to worship Him. When we get this, when we get that understanding of the gospel and how it redefines us, that ought to make us, as God's people, missionally distinct. That ought to make us very different from the culture around us because we now work with a different purpose. We spend with a different purpose. We're generous for a different purpose. This understanding that we are pilgrims, that the gospel brings, radically changes us and makes us vastly different from the culture around us because we live in a culture that worships money as God and the gospel changes that and we now worship God with our money. The gospel changes everything. That ought to make us distinct. That ought to make us a radically generous people because we worship a radically generous God. Everything changes when we have that view of the gospel. When the housing price rises, so much so that it seems beyond our reach to ever possibly afford one, we do not despair because we know that we have a home set aside for us in the age to come where the streets are paved with gold. So we sit loosely with that. And we look forward to the home that will be ours for all eternity. You see how the gospel changes everything and allows us to sit loose and have a blessed detachment to the very thing that the rest of this culture is frantically pursuing to no avail. Maybe you're here today and you've realized that you are hanging all of your significance and purpose and value on worth on something that in the end is fleeting and is going to pass away. Maybe even you love and worship Jesus and you realize that your heart has defaulted back again into finding your sense of security in those things rather than Him. Friends, allow the gospel this morning to realign your thinking, realign your heart, and bring you back to Jesus, the one who radically, radically transforms our soul's longing and satisfies it with a satisfaction that no suitcase of money can buy. Because in Christ, we are rich spiritually. Amen? Let me pray, and we're going to respond and worship to our great God. We're going to do that in a couple of ways. We've got two uh, communion stations to my right and left with uh, bread and grape juice on it. And we invite you, after a time of reflection, of responding to the gospel, to come forward, dip the bread into the grape juice, eat it, and give thanks to the gospel. You may not be ready to do that. You may not worship Jesus. Please feel free to stay in your seat and be comfortable to do that. We're also going to respond in worship now as we sing to the great God, the great God who has set us free, given us new purpose, significance, and meaning in life. We pray together. Let's stand on your feet, church, and let's give thanks to this great God. God, we thank you. We thank you that God who does not let us sit and wallow 
in purposeless existence. You are the God who has brought the significance, the meaning, the purpose that we so desperately need in the gospel. And Father, this morning we confess that so often our hearts default to finding our sense of security, finding our status, finding the solutions to our problems in our wealth and our finances when the real answer is found in Jesus. Would you cast our eyes again to the cross and help us see in Christ the one who brings that very longing that we so desperately need. This morning, Father, we worship you for that. We pray that you would transform us, send us out of here, radically distinct people, that this world might see a people changed by the gospel for your glory. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and those who agreed said, Amen.